thank you for joining our conversation on Wow Whispering. I am your host, Diane A. Curran, and it is delightful to be with you. Wow is spontaneous, open, expressive. Whispering is intimate, still, receptive. In our modern age, moments rush in or away like quicksilver. Do we even make the time to savor a wow or reflect on a whisper, to notice and value such gifts? We're ready to do just that with you right now. I am so thrilled to have everyone with us again today. And I say us because I have a very special guest to share with you today. I'm Diane, of course, and you're here on Wow Whispering. And today we are speaking with Rabbi Bonnie Lawrence. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about her extraordinary background. But first, I'd just like to say hello, Bonnie. How are you today? It's good to be with you. Thank you, Diane. It's great to be with you again today. I haven't seen you for a while, so this is wonderful. It really is great that we now have all kinds of tools to get reconnected and we don't even have to go play in traffic. (laughs) (laughs) I like the not playing in traffic part, yes. Yes, especially here in Los Angeles, where we where we both are located in the the greater, you know, sort of, I'll say, expanding metropolis of Los Angeles. So I want to share with our listeners that Rabbi Bonnie is an award-winning speaker and the author of Messages That Matter and of the book, Who Stole Your Crayons? The Journey from Brokenness to Love. She is an attorney, an executive leadership coach, a public speaker, and a rabbi. Phew, that's more than one lifetime's worth of extraordinary journeys to learning and knowledge and wisdom. So we're going to have lots to talk about today. She loves helping people understand themselves and their lives. She's committed to helping you live your greatest life of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. Oh my gosh, how perfect for wow whispering. So Rabbi Bonnie, as you, as you listen to me talk about you, does anything come to mind as you kind of notice, yes, I have been up to one or two things in my life. <laughs> I wonder why I'm so tired half the time. Um, just teasing. I'm, uh, looking back at my life, I'm very grateful for all the experiences that I have had so that I have this information base to be of service to others, to help others. You know, it seems as though one of the things that helps people to be of extraordinary service is to be able to step outside whatever mindset or whatever specific uh, background we have and, if you will, empathize and be able to really be over there with other people. So the more pathways that you travel, such as you have, that really has got to help. And I must say, I'm intrigued with the distinctions between being an attorney and being a rabbi. Do you find those are very far apart or maybe closer than people realize? Closer than people realize. In my interview for admission to the seminary, Rabbi Blaine wanted to know what I was doing for a living prior to applying to become a, a rabbi. And I told him, I'm an attorney. And he looked at me and said, what's with all you attorneys who want to become rabbis? And my response was, and how does a Jew answer a question except with another question, which was, <laughs> what is the Torah? Amongst other things, it's a book of laws, at which time he said, all right, you're admitted, it's fine. So... They're very similar in many ways. Um, My journey in life, though, has given me a lot more compassion, understanding, and empathy than I had starting as an attorney decades ago. 
And so I, as an attorney, did you specialize in a particular type of law? Because that's a very multifaceted profession. What I wound up doing was a lot of bankruptcy work, personal injury cases, and people ask me how the two fit together. Well, personal injury cases are wonderful when they settle, but they may not settle for a year or two. So how do you pay your bills? So the bankruptcy work, I helped many people. I was able to sustain myself and keep going. Uh, I also added in estate planning work. And if somebody walked in the door and needed help with a small problem, I helped them. I, I never turned anybody away. I think that is really an extraordinary commitment to being of service to people. And it might not fit the stereotypes. Every profession has their own stereotypes. I know my profession has many people like to think of people in a really a pretty small box. And my experience with attorneys has been both as friends, as clients, and as people who have supported me. And I find that the variety of personalities, the varieties of the way that we relate to the law is really fascinating because we think of the law as this kind of, it's set in stone and there it is, and it's as clear as a bell, but I suspect that's not really how it is, the clear as a bell part, right? Right, well, we have what, we, what is known as black letter law. This is the law, but we are human beings. It's, we don't fit into boxes, we have gray areas. And the job of an attorney is to look at that human being and the situation and see how the law applies or doesn't apply. Make an argument that maybe law A shouldn't be applied, but maybe law B is the better law. So it's, there is a lot of gray area in the law. However, with bankruptcy work, it was pretty cut and dry, actually, unless you get into some kind of a litigation matter. And then, then this other gray area fits in. But much of law can be black letter. That's an interesting term I have not heard before, and yet it, it makes perfect sense because it is written in a particular way, using particular language that is, well, designed to allow it to stand and not be sort of eroded away, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm saying it in a way that makes sense. It, it's really intended to be somewhat fixed and, um, we'll say, a guideline for generations, oftentimes. Well, guideline, yes, but what's the intent behind the law? Mm -hmm. You know, there is what we call strict construction and then the more substantive construction. What's the intent of the law in the first place? Okay. Uh, you're not supposed to run a red light. I love traffic examples because everybody can understand them. <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to run a red light. That is correct. But what if um, there's some kind of an emergency and it's safe. You're still breaking the law, but should you be doing that? Is that a defense? I, I can't answer that one. I'm just posing the question. That is a great question because the word emergency is a, is a, a word that is open to interpretation in and of itself. Right. Is it something life-threatening? Is it a matter of preference? Is it a matter of interpretation by the viewer or the legal authority in that case. What do you do? I mean, I know of a case of a, a woman uh, a while back on the Santa Monica freeway going home at night, about 10 o'clock at night, and she was driving 35 miles an hour, which oh was my. not, yeah, it wasn't illegal, but a police officer rightfully pulled her over and said, what's wrong? And it was one of our elderly citizens. And so what did the policeman do? He escorted her home. 
Ah, so rather than arrest her and say, you can't do this and you are endangering other people, he... He did the right her. thing. He was a decent yeah. human being and said, let yeah. me get her home safely. That's great. And of course at night, you know, sometimes people are not their best in the dark or best at night. So that's an interesting example where the law and the human beings converged in a way that didn't create an altercation. Correct. Or a situation where the woman would have gone on, but I wasn't doing anything wrong. Because technically she wasn't. She wasn't, you know, speeding. But yet it could have created a dangerous condition on the freeway. Yeah, it makes me wonder, is there a minimum that you must travel at? Or is it, is it more a matter of what's safe for the road conditions? It's what's safe for the road conditions. Because what if it had been raining? Or, you know, I come from back east, so what if it had been snowing or a blizzard? Yeah, you don't want to be forced to drive 40 miles an hour no, in a blizzard. Oh, my then gosh. Then again, that's why neither one of us live back east anymore. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. So um, now sort of bridging the gap, if you will, between all that you've done in, in the middle and your speaking and your coaching, you move into a world as a rabbi, which is very much about a particular codification of, of what is best for human beings to do in life. And that is considered law, yes? Yes, the Jewish scripture, the point of it is to set a ground, set of ground rules so that people can live life in peace and have a set of guidelines to follow. The one thing I love, I love many things about Judaism, but the one thing I love the most is that the highest value in Judaism is life itself. You know, do you, do you rescue somebody who's drowning in a river? Of course you do. If you can't do it, you call for help and make sure everybody can do what they can do, you know? So that's a value that I regrettably don't see in the world today. So do you feel that, in, and you know, we are certainly in the context and we have seen some horrible tragedies literally in the last week. Yes. And unfortunately the pace of, and frequency of tragedies has become something that we are not inured to, but we are somewhat stunned by how frequently they occur. But we're in a space where that respect for life, that sanctity of life is, is not um, in the place it was even, I don't know, a few years ago, a decade ago? What, what would you see there? I, I agree with you, and I'm saddened by it. Um, I will share that this Sunday I went to a, an interfaith prayer service because of what happened last week. Mm -hmm. And it was wonderful. We as Jews were there. There were people there from the Muslim community. There were people there from all spectrums of Christianity. And of course the clergy spoke and we sang. And then at the end, we did something absolutely wonderful. They had handed out pieces of yarn about a foot long to everybody. Mm -hmm. And at the end, we tied it all together to show that we are all one in unity. Oh my gosh. We need more of that. We need, as human beings, we need to do more of that. Because when you come right down to it, we all bleed the same color. There's no difference. For those who are listening to this uh, later on, because one of the amazing things about podcasts is they have a, a rather long life. It's kind of an extended life. So people who may, are listening to this may not realize that there was a, a horrible shooting of many people 
at a Jewish synagogue that was intended to shoot them and kill them because they are in fact Jewish people. And they were all people, I think the youngest was 65, the oldest was 97. The youngest was 56, I believe, and the oh, oldest 56. was 97. There yeah. were a number of Holocaust survivors there. Um, yeah. There were married couples. The married couple, I understand, were dentists who were getting ready to retire, but once a week they would go volunteer at a homeless situation to provide free dental services for people. Mm -hmm. So these are people who, and speaking of life, the tree of life is the name of their synagogue. And this really is a, is a it's, it's hard to put it even words, the contrast between this, the respect for life and the desecration of life. And that has really shocked so many of us. So I mentioned this only because for people who may listen to this later, we are in a moment where for us, this is a very recent occurrence and it's, it feels, it's, we feel it in our hearts, we feel it in our conversation. And you were just describing what I think is a really beautiful way for people to reconnect with each other at a moment when they might feel very estranged from other people, very left alone, very not sure how to process something like this. Right. And, and my attitude with living is it doesn't cost any money to be a decent human being. A smile can make a difference in a person's life. Going to the grocery store, taking a wagon, and instead of taking it for yourself, handing it to the person behind you waiting for it, you know, helping somebody hold open a door for somebody help somebody, you know, get food down or groceries or carry something or just hello. It doesn't take a lot to change the energy of the planet. It takes people willing to be um, what I call goodwill ambassadors of peace and goodwill, you know? Mm. And if everybody did that, maybe slowly we could change things. You are really moving right into the realm of what I call whispering, which is that quiet kind of voice that sometimes it comes from within. And then other times we might see someone else behaving in a way you think, what prompted them to be generous? What prompted them to help somebody or hold the door for somebody? It might be a whisper of some sort. And that's an interesting thing because, of course, whisper is a very complicated word. It can mean something that's very still and quiet and almost reverent and intimate. And it can also be used against people, whispers that are not well-intended. So it really comes back to what are our intentions in any given moment. I agree with you on that. What is your intention for living? You know, are you out to be so greedy that you're only for yourself? Not that you shouldn't be for yourself, but at the same time, are you willing to help people how you can? Well, that brings us to your personal wow. And you said it so eloquently. You wrote it so eloquently. I'd like to share it with people. I asked you to share a wow. And you said, realizing that I choose to live my life for the greatest good, that my message is so needed today. My message is very simply this. You are not here to hate or destroy. You are here to learn, to praise, to labor, and to love. You are here to share your very unique, precious, wonderful gifts with the world, and you are here to make the world a better place for all. That includes human beings, the environment, 
and anything else you can think of. What's the greatest good for all? We are human. We have specific needs, specific individual needs. Yes. But do we need to take plastic bottles and throw them into the ocean? Or do we recycle those plastic bottles for the good? I understand now that there are that there is equipment that takes plastic and can recycle it so that it could be used for paving roads. Great. Absolutely. It's remarkable. I mean, the inventiveness of human beings is something to call upon and to really do exactly what you're saying, create, create a way out of the mess that we've made really collectively. Yes. We have the Pacific gyre and what that is for folks who don't know what it is, it's a gigantic garbage heap that is swirling around in the Pacific ocean. There's more than one. There's also other ones. There's one in the Atlantic, and I think there are at least a couple of others. And yet, I remember a few years ago reading a quick news story. A young man, he might have even been a teenager, was working on inventing some technology to help extract and solve the gyre problem. And mm. so what I, what I really am reminded of and what you're saying here is that each one of us has something to contribute. When we put that together, we might wind up with ideas that collectively occur that we might not have individually. So we do need each other. We need each other to survive. Yes, absolutely. And there are companies involved with cleaning up the plastic mess. You know, the, the question becomes, are you living your life to not add to the existing problems? Can't do everything, you know, but you do what you can. And it's, it's intriguing to see how a habit like that can take hold. I remember... Um, here in Los Angeles, I believe it was either the beginning of this year or last year, there was a, whether it was a law or an ordinance passed that said no more plastic bags are going to be given out or no more bags actually at the grocery store. And everybody said, oh my gosh, well, you could buy one, but you would have to pay for it. And the idea was to get people used to bringing their bags and using them several times. And now I notice when I go to the grocery store, I notice people opening up their trunk, reaching in to get their bag to take it into the store. And it's so great to see that. And it took a while because, you know, you just say, oh my gosh, I left it at home. So now it's like, oh yes, put it in your car if that's what you use to go to the grocery store or put it in your, in your, on your bicycle in the little um, knapsack maybe that you carry with you. So you've got it whenever you find yourself saying, whoops, I've got to do a quick errand at the grocery store. And it's really amazing how that little habit will save huge numbers of bags and plastic and, uh, and litter. Yes. And I have about a dozen of those nice fabric bags in my car at any given time. So yeah, it's all good. Um, little things, little things like being aware of not running the water while you're brushing your teeth. Just just little things to be wary of. It doesn't take much. It takes an awareness and a commitment to it. So I want to ask you, in your work where you are providing spiritual guidance, spiritual support, spiritual encouragement to people, are you finding anything like a shift in the way families try to deal with each other? Because, you know, we're in, the, we're in the process of a combination of both upset with some of the political difficulties in the world and at the same time this desire to try to address on a one-by-one -one level how you raise kids how you get them to be good citizens in the world what are you noticing about family dynamics these days 
The one thing I have a problem with is that people can be sitting next to each other or across from each other, and they're texting each other. Turn the phone off, turn the computer off, and talk to each other. We're, you, we're losing communication skills, and in that, we're losing understanding of each other. That's a big issue for me. That's a big problem for me. If I can get people past that, the next hurdle is convincing people that they can, they can and should take one day a week to turn off the electronics and spend time with each other, with themselves. I often hear, I don't have, I can't do it. It's like, you know what? You can't do 25 hours. Start with half an hour. Start with an hour. Build into it. Pick a day. My day is Shabbat. It's Friday night, Saturday. I try to keep the phone off. Sometimes I sense I need to turn it on for a little bit, so I do. But pick a day and say, family time. Can't do the whole day. Do an afternoon. Take the phone. Turn the phones off. Parents, take your kids. Spend time with them. Go to the park. Talk to each other. Whatever happened to going to the park and throwing around a baseball or a football or just basketball? I love basketball. Or just plain old talking to each other. Um, and that would go a long way with people respecting each other, because you cannot hate somebody if you know them. If you don't know somebody, it is very easy to marginalize them and then criminalize them. But once you know somebody, you get to like them, you get to trust them, then the world changes. You know, you remind me that what allows that to happen is the proximity with each other and it's the conversation. And I really sort of, I consider it part of what I want to accomplish in this podcast is to get us to explore the, what I call the heart of conversation. And you've just said it beautifully, that the heart of conversation allows some connection to develop rather naturally, rather, you know, almost by itself. If you're just in conversation with people, you find out something. Maybe you find out you have something in common. Maybe you were born in the same state or in the same year, or you both have a love of a certain aspect of life or a hobby or something, now you have some place to go with that. Exactly. And we live isolated lives, don't we? We don't oh. really live in community anymore, do we? Okay. And, and that to me is a real problem. Um, I, I'm not sure what the fix is, but certainly we have religious communities, we have schools, we have everything else going on, but it's still not a traditional community in which people live in a community that you can say, hi, I'm sick. Can somebody bring over, you know, a bowl of chicken soup for me? Or, hi, I need money for a book. I don't have it. Okay, what do you need? You need me to buy a book for you. Okay, I'm going grocery shopping. What would you like me to bring back for you? We don't have this anymore. It's, it's very rare. Yeah. You know, I remember growing up, <clears throat> I lived on a busy street, but we had, I'm going to say six houses that were kind of all close together. And so it wasn't uncommon for us to, for the kids to be sent on errands to the local little uh, grocery store. And we might be asked to pick up something for a neighbor at the same time. It was, we, we knew each other well enough that that was an okay thing. It was something you could trust would be fine. And it wasn't considered a burden. It was just, hey, if I do this for you, you'll do this for me. Right. And, and there's a bigger dimension to that that I want to add in, and it's called restorative justice and tikkun olam. Tikkun olam is Hebrew 
the, the figurative meaning is to put the world in order, restore the world to a sense of wholeness. We were talking earlier about the plastic waste in the oceans. Mm -hmm. That's part of it. But for me, as an attorney as well, the concept of restorative justice is part of Tikkun Olam. Restorative justice basically says something happened. Somebody was injured. You've got a victim. You've got a perpetrator. How are you going to make people accept responsibility and restore people to a sense of wholeness? Certainly, you can't go back to who you were before the incident happened. But mm -hmm. people can grow and change and heal from that. And we don't have anything like that in our society. Yes, the victims of uh, the, the coach who molested them stood up in court and said, hey, you, and, and called them out. And the judge said, you are no longer a victim, you're a survivor. But that's not enough. Those people are, are, are horribly damaged for life, emotionally and psychologically. So how do we as a people deal with that? How do we as a country deal with that? I am studying Native American society because they have a sense of restorative justice, which they can because they do have a community. So in that community, are you finding that there are some principles that support this notion, such as you, it is expected that you will behave in a certain way? It's not really a law per se, but this idea that you are expected to, for example, honor your elders, you are expected hmm. to care for those less fortunate, uh, either materially or in their abilities to, to do certain things that you sort of take for granted in your own life. I'm wondering what you're noticing about what is it that causes that connection to happen? But one, they live in community in the first place. Okay. So you can't really hide out, can you? Okay. No. And it, there's a sense of respect and there's a sense of responsibility for everybody. There's also a sense that people are inherently good. And just because you made a mistake doesn't mean you're a really bad person. It means you made a mistake. Now let's separate the two from each other, if possible, mm -hmm. and say, okay, you made a mistake. What did you learn from that? What do you need to do to make things right to the people you did wrong by? Um, you know, in Portugal, they did something that in this country would be considered to be impossible and that was that they started to address their drug um, offender problem in a very radically healthy way instead of consigning them to prison and a, and a life where they wouldn't be rehabilitated and they would be pretty much thrown away in terms of their potential value to their community they started to really look at rehabilitation in a way that was very much about decriminalizing the person, if you will, not necessarily right. that they don't need to make amends, but the person is what you want to save and you save it in the sense that you want to restore. I love that word that you've brought up. Did you say restorative justice? That's a good concept. Yeah. And, and, and I have a few favorite sayings from the Talmud and mm -hmm. two of them are, you save the world one soul at a time. The next is, by saving one soul, it is as if you have saved the entire world. Oh. Okay? So it's a different philosophy. So it really is a reminder of the power of generosity 
to really be committed to supporting someone in a journey where they may need some help. They don't have the wherewithal already in place or on their own. Right. Well, people do the best that they can. They do what they know how to do. Doesn't mean they can't be improved upon. Doesn't mean that there are other options or that there isn't a way of looking at the world that is more supportive of people. So I'm reminded that you have demonstrated something that I think is kind of a secret, amazing power of life. And that is to always be learning because you have clearly from an early age, you have studied and learned and become certified and approved. And for example, to become an attorney is no small feat, but you didn't leave it at that. You started to uh, get certified in other skills and areas, including, of course, becoming a rabbi, which is a very academically challenging and involved process. How do you feel about your experience of learning? What have you noticed about the process or the, the experience of what it's like to be learning something that really takes, takes something from you to do it? But it doesn't take from me. It gives me. <laughs> That's the point. It, it's a okay. learning experience. What it gives to me is a sense of expanding my knowledge base, not only about the world, but about other people and about myself. Mm-hmm. My journey has been one of understanding myself and healing myself, making choices. So I can look at people and say, you have other choices to make. What are you going to choose? Well, this brings to mind your book, which is, well, there's two. There's messages that matter. And who Stole Your Crayons? I think that's a great title. Can you tell us a little about which, whichever one you feel is pertinent to our conversation today? Because they're both very intriguing sounding to me. Okay. Who Stole Your Crayons? The Journey from Brokenness <laughs> to Love. It is about my own journey going back uh-huh. to Queens, New York. I love to read. I still do. I love to do art. I still do. As a child, I would spend hours reading, doing art, playing the piano. And one day in school, we made an art project. Now, now we call them Frisbees, so I'm giving it away. But back then, we would take two round paper plates, color them on the outside, paint them, glue them together, and we would use them to throw. The way we do now, we would play catch with them, okay? But now they are officially called Frisbees. Frisbee actually is a, is a registered trademark of the Hasbro Corporation, based upon the Frisbee company pie plates. There was a Frisbee pie company. So that's where oh. all of this started. So um, it started with actual pie plates? Yes. <laughs> Remember the aluminum pie plates and you would throw them? That's I do. They were very throwable, weren't they? Yes. <laughs> and they didn't come back like the boomerang. That's the only hard part. <laughs> <laughs> Not unless your dog caught them and they came back. But there you go. You had to have a dog in the picture. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I made this project in school one day. I was in the first or second grade and I wanted to keep it. And some of the other kids liked it and they wanted it. And I, for some reason, I didn't have the ability to say, you can't have it. It's mine. I didn't have the moxie to say, Hey, you want it? How much are you going to pay me for it? I didn't know about (laughs) that back then. Okay. And so on the way home from school, walking down the sidewalk, and I can still see myself doing this. Some of the kids were running after me. I want it. I want it. I want it. And I was crying. I said, mm, and I threw it away. I heard some of the kids jump into the trash can and fight over it. And I walked home. I never looked back. I was crying. I know when I got home, my mother knew I was upset, but God bless my mother. She never pushed me. Um, maybe she should have, but she didn't. 
And in throwing that away, I threw away a large part of myself. Mm -hmm. I never really looked back until recently. I went on to do many things. I became an attorney. I studied accounting. I studied tax law. I became a tax professional. And then things changed in my life about 14 years ago, because at that time, my late mother, now late mother, developed Alzheimer's and dementia. And has her, as her, the one in the family, the one of her three kids, she chose to be responsible for her. It was me, and I'm fine with that. Um, mm -hmm. But as her life changed, so did mine. Yeah. Uh, my responsibilities changed. I was forced to look at myself on my own patterns of behavior, who I was, and my inner journey started. And I didn't realize just how broken inside I was mm -hmm. until I went on this journey. And as part of that process, I stopped practicing law for a long time. I became a rabbi. I studied and did many, many, many things. So it's who stole your crayons. It was life stole it. And yet I reclaimed it because now I do art as you saw on my website. Yes. And the journey from brokenness, being so broken inside myself to not being able to accept myself to actually saying, you know what? I'm okay. These are all my gifts I can share with the world. This is my love I can give out into the world. And that's why the subtitle. Well, it, it's a very evocative title. And on your website, let me share that now to make sure I uh, let people know how they can see your beautiful art. There's two ways to do it. You can use her name, BonnieLawrence.com. And I'll spell that B-O-N-N-I-E. Lawrence is L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E. Or BonnieLawrenceArt.com. So you get two ways to get to the same place. Yes. And this is a wonderful website because it really does blend your art and your writing so that you have beautiful examples of mandalas and just beautiful pieces that would be very appealing for someone who might want to be maybe meditating or taking a peaceful break and just letting their eyes wander over something really quite lovely and symmetrical and balanced and peaceful. So you have the art. You also have some rather intriguing sounding blog posts. Um, you have the Tikkun Olam blog post. You have the repetitive behavior, cellular regression blog post. And then you have one called the Akashic Records, your book of life. So you really cover quite a few traditions. It's the way that you, Rabbi Bonnie, are able to bring together multiple cultures, which have their own history and their own way of exploring and discovering life and find the commonalities among them and find what they can share together. Thank you. That is one of my unique gifts that I've recently discovered that I have. I have an ability to take a lot of information, synthesize it down, explain it to people in ways that they understand it and can apply it in their life. That's the critical piece is that, you know, you're a good storyteller and, and I love a good story. Now, now what? Yeah. <laughs> now. How do I make this my own in life, right? How do I, exactly. what does that do that might prompt me to maybe have some more confidence or be willing to take a little bit of risk outside my usual um, expectations of myself, whatever that might be. So it sounds like mm. you kind of hand the torch to someone in terms of inspiration. And my favorite, my favorite phrase is not, I am there for you. My favorite line is, I am here with you on your journey supporting you. It's a different feel, isn't it? It really is. And I'm noticing that it makes me feel more present. This idea that someone is with you 
is about right now. And just what you were talking about earlier, and we, we're kind of getting a little theme here of what I'm gonna call conversation becomes an access to so much. It becomes an access to sharing, supporting, learning, and maybe even developing new confidence, new skills, and a new pathway in life. Yes. So what I also wanted to um, ask you as you're thinking about wow versus whisper, you know, wow is expressive and it's, it's, it's outward and it's, you know, many people don't really have a definition for the word wow. They just say it. It comes naturally out of their mouths. Yeah. It's been around for a long time. I'm, I'm fond of saying it's been around since the 16th century in Scotland and we still don't have a definition for it. <laughs> In fact, I, I made one up and um, see whether you think it has any of the elements. I was thinking about wow as an intuitive, instinctive expression voiced in awe or pleasure or stun when presented with the unexpected. That's a, that's a good working definition. I like that. It's got a lot of parts to it because wow has a lot of parts. We say it in many different circumstances. Sometimes we say it really loud and sometimes we say it kind of in a whisper. And you are wowing me because what you're doing is weaving together a way for people to connect with each other and connect with their own ability to grow maybe. Would that be would that be a fair description of a little bit of what people do around you? I love to work with people so that they can connect with themselves first. Mm -hmm. We're all so externally motivated. Got to go here, got to do that, got to get to work, got to do this, got to do that. Where's the time to sit with yourself? I had somebody once tell me that being introspective is being narcissistic. And when I asked this individual for a definition, he couldn't answer that. Narcissism is one thing, being so self-absorbed that nothing else matters. But introspective means you can stop you can look at yourself and make changes so you can go out into the world and be with people in a whole new way. For example, let's say for whatever reason, you're angry and you're upset and you've got to go to work, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't want you driving a car if you're angry and upset. I want yeah. you to stop and say, take a deep breath, I'm angry and upset because understand yourself, calm down for a few minutes so you can drive safely for yourself and everybody else on the road. Now that's not narcissism, that is being responsible. And you know, in, in the olden days, my parents used to just say, you have to learn to count to 10. And that is really a practical, for a little kid's mind, that's a practical way to do exactly what you just described. Because by the time you get to 10, your emotions can't stay at that fever pitch from right. one all the way through 10, can they? Something has to move a little bit anyway. Yeah. So that's why I like to encourage people, if you can't take an hour or whatever to meditate, you can stop in the morning for five minutes. Mm -hmm. Everybody has five minutes to stop, to breathe, and to just take a deep breath and calm down. You can call it meditation. You can call it calming down. I don't care what you label it. Just do it because it will make you very different as you go into the world. So on that note, we're going to take a little break and we're going to come right back in a moment with, uh, with Rabbi Bonnie, who has been just uh, a delight. And we're going to invite you to stay with us. Thank you for being with us on Wow Whispering. In each episode, we present a public service announcement that highlights resources committed to uplifting our quality of life. Look for the episode show notes, which have links to learn more. Today, we are pleased to feature 
the National Women's History Museum. It's an online institution preserving women's history and working to establish a physical museum in Washington, DC. Founded in 1996, the National Women's History Museum is a nonpartisan, nonprofit 501c3 educational institution that's dedicated to preserving, interpreting, and celebrating the diverse contributions that women have made to society. By the way, you can reach them on womenshistory.org, the website, or on Twitter at Women's History. Now, on Mother's Day weekend, two decades ago, a group of women dedicated themselves to moving something out of the U.S. Capitol's basement, it's known as the crypt, to its rightful place in the Capitol Rotunda. It was the Adelaide Johnson's portrait monument to Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony. You may have heard those names before. The statue is more commonly known as the Women's Suffrage Statue, and it memorializes pioneering suffragists and first arrived at the Capitol on February 10th, 1921. Five days later, on February 15th, it was unveiled in a ceremony as a gift from the women of the nation to the people of the United States by the National Women's Party. But the very next day, the portrait monument traveled outdoors, down the Capitol steps, and through the doors into the crypt, where it remained for nearly 76 years. Why is women's history so important? Because women's contributions and accomplishments, for the most part, have been overlooked and consequently omitted from mainstream culture. The National Women's History Museum will help fill that void. Rather than rewriting current exhibitions at other history museums, or having to decide what to omit elsewhere to fit in women's history, the museum will serve to place women's history alongside current historical exhibitions. Women's history isn't meant to rewrite history. The objective is to promote scholarship and expand our knowledge of American history. What a fabulous mission. Thank you. So we are back with Rabbi Bonnie, and she is sharing with us really a rather extraordinary journey of life. Everything from being a kid who, who really was an artistically inclined child, a person who rode, and then like we all do, we have the wounds of childhood, and we grow up, and she became an attorney. Then she became an executive leadership coach, a public speaker, and now she is a rabbi who really is opening up the world of what is possible in spiritual tradition by stepping into it as one of the pioneering women who are now rabbis. And that is really uh, very encouraging, I think, for all of us who would like to see women reach their full potential in our modern society. So I wanted to ask you, on your journey to becoming a rabbi, was there anything that you had to maybe address in terms of the expectation that women can or maybe cannot be rabbis? Is that something that's disappeared and we're all great now or still some things to, to address there? In modern Judaism, it is much more acceptable for a woman to be a rabbi than in the Orthodox and the extreme Orthodox world, which I will not step my foot into. They have their own view of women and what a woman's role is, and I don't agree with them. And in, and in a way, it's sad because there are some very fine scholars of the Talmud that I would mm -hmm. like to learn with, and yet I cannot do that because I'm a woman. Mm. So that is sad to me in a way. 
getting out into the modern world, much more acceptable for me as a woman to be a rabbi, uh, much more acceptable in non-Jewish faith traditions for me to be a rabbi. Mm -hmm. There's far more understanding of it. You are really paving a road that, that hasn't existed, and it is a road not only within your own culture and religious tradition, but it's a road that inspires young girls and women in their own traditions, whatever they may be, to say, you know what, if I'm running into a limitation, maybe I can be the one to open that up and expand it out because they see that you're doing it as well. Now, that brings me to something I would love to invite you to read a poem that I know is very special to you. And as we kind of move toward completing our conversation, I would love our listeners to hear you read a poem that I think will underscore the kind of whispering nature of today's conversation. So if I may, would you share that with us? Yes, thank you so much. The poem is entitled, Your Still Small Voice Within, and it is in my book, Who Stole Your Crayons? And it goes thusly. Spend time by yourself with yourself, in peace, quiet, and solitude at a place you love. The ocean, mountains, forest, desert or let that still small voice within become a large voice one that you hear all the time listen to it follow it follow your heart and soul to the truth of who you really are a magnificent whole complete unique abundant gifted and loved child of your loving creator love yourself and live your life not someone else's but yours the one God created you for, the one you've been aching for forever. Oh, wow. Thank you. It's, it really builds to a crescendo of, of energy and expansion in such a natural way. Thank you. you know, and part of it is that we all live lives we think we're supposed to lead, right? <laughs> you're supposed yeah. to grow up and you're supposed to do this, that, or whatever. And then we have the midlife crisis. I don't view it as a crisis. I view it as a confusion as, as to what you should have been doing with your life the whole time. Mm -hmm. Nobody's yep. forcing you to become a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, a rabbi, a priest, an artist, whatever. You know, the list from your family is long. How you've been conditioned is a long list. But by the time you stop and go inside yourself, things change. Things change for the better because you feel better about yourself. That still small voice within is something you say, give it room to give it room to get your attention. Yes. I don't think people set goals and then fail at the goals. I think people set goals based upon somebody else's expectation of them, but it isn't really what they want, so they don't meet the goal. They're not a failure. They just haven't taken the time to say, no, I don't want to do that. This is who I am. Oh, and you know, we, um, I certainly am aware of this in the world of not just formal education, but even kind of self, self-development education. There is sometimes a sense that, well, gosh, if I just do what that other person did, I'll be successful too, because they're successful. Well, that would only be true if you really do want to do that thing that they're doing. Now, that can happen, but sometimes what gets in the way is, if you're taking on a goal that, as you say, you're not really heartfelt and aligned with and inspired by, the obstacles get to be just too darn big because there's always going to be obstacles and there's always going to be the unexpected barrier or difficulty. And if that 
is something that feels painful and horrible and annoying and why do I have to deal with this? It's probably because your goal is not your goal. Right. We, we found that out, didn't we, the hard way? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Both of us. <laughs> well, this has been such a delight. My guest today has been Rabbi Bonnie Lawrence, and she has really shared some very pithy food for thought, some many whispers and a couple of great wows. I want to invite everyone here to take on much of what you have suggested, which is maybe just take five minutes a day and just see if you can tune into what matters to you, what might be seeking your attention, what might be percolating around in the background, trying to get your attention and let that start to have a bigger space in your life. Rabbi Bonnie, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Oh, that reminds me, you have something to offer people. And that is, if they go to your website, they can uh, join your email list and get a copy of that beautiful poem, Your Still Small Voice Within. And also, you're offering listeners a 25% discount on your counseling and mentoring programs. Just mention the podcast. Thank you for that generosity. Absolutely. In addition to that, let me just remind people of the website. It's bonnielawrence.com or bonnielawrenceart.com. And let me ask you again, now that I've interrupted myself, is there something you'd like to leave our listeners with in terms of thought or an idea or maybe something for them to pursue? I will repeat what I said earlier from the Talmud, and it's this. You save the world one soul at a time. And if you save one soul, it is as if you have saved the entire world. People may say, okay, so you rescued one cat or one dog. So what? No, to them, it is the entire world and you have saved one soul. Mm, that's beautiful. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. And we will trust that our listeners are going to jump right out there and discover what life would like to show up and present to them. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure to be with you in the world of wow whispering. As we complete this episode, I invite you to notice the wows and whispers that enliven or challenge as they fulfill life for you in both tiny moments and transforming experiences. I wish you the very best until we meet next time.